For those who are uh, just joining us, you are joining us in process as we uh, go through the book of uh, the chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, we're hanging out a little while there because as we've jumped into this uh, little section of the Bible, we find out there are some deep truths. And uh, to be honest, I, please be patient with me as I am still new in this school, in this swim school, and I'm a little nervous to go in the deep end. Uh, so I'm still paddling with everybody else, but, uh, but we're learning and we're growing. I think there's some great, great things to be learned for, uh, for, for us in 1 Corinthians 13. And we have already uh, learned from this deep pool of uh, this love chapter. And we have more, t- more yet to go. Um, if you're joining us, I think we're in like week four or five, and I think we've only done like three verses, <laughs> so we're really trying, uh, but uh, there's a lot to be said here and a lot to learn. So I'm going to read for you First uh, Corinthians chapter 13, um, verses four through seven. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Uh, We've covered a fair amount of this. But uh, by popular request, uh, we want to focus on (laughs) some verses that we didn't spend as much time on, a couple of these uh, couplets that we didn't spend as much time on. So we're going to look at, it does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. We'll start there. It does not insist on its own way. This is a tough one here. This is written by Paul. This letter is written by Paul to the church at Corinth. Corinth is this place that is very cosmopolitan. Uh, It has drawn people from all over the empire to be here. It's a a place of great commerce uh, as people are are bringing in goods through, through land and sea and exchanging them. And so you have all kinds of influences there. And you have all kinds of seediness that happens in that city of Corinth. Some of you have got to visit that place and you can see, uh, you saw all the different shrines and the, the houses of ill repute. It was it's a pretty messy, messy place. And then you bring the church in and you call those people out of those lives into a, the new way with Jesus Christ. And they come just like we come with some of that baggage that's still carrying with them. And so of all the churches, Corinth is the messiest probably that we hear about. There are things going on in that church that are even worse that are going than outside the church. It's pretty bad. There is a real selfishness that happens that people don't even realize is happening in the life of the church. And so Paul is very good at uh, pointing those out for them so they might understand how selfish they are. They might feel like they're doing much better than the people on the outside, but Paul is saying, really, you're not. 
there needs to be some real transformation in your lives. You don't have quite the picture of what it means to be God's people. So these are some of the things they were doing when they would come together to, to have a meal, to take the Lord's Supper, probably to break bread together and eat a meal, and then before that, breaking bread to celebrate the Lord's Supper, they would show up and they, the first ones there would say like, where are they, you know? I don't got all day. I eat at six, you know that. I always eat at six. And it's 6.30. So they would eat, and there would be little to nothing left. And the other people would come in, and like, they're like, well, we're, we're ready to worship already. You're late. And so there was like issues over the table. There was the misuse of gifts where there were those who were given seemingly even greater gifts than others, and, and they were using them, and as they were using them, they were actually glorifying themselves and not glorifying God. There were arguments and division within the church. There was sexual immorality that was even worse in the church than it, and, and more taboo than was in the rest of the community. And that sexual immorality, that is a, a kind of love. That word, the word in Greek is uh, an erotic kind of love. The word is eros. And, and eros is a self-serving kind of love that we have for each other. In, in some ways, we, you don't, it, when, when we talk about this agape love of thir- chapter 13, when we say the word love and we say agape, then when you hear us say eros and the word love, it doesn't seem to even fit together. Like that doesn't seem quite like love because it's, it's a self-seeking kind of, self-satisfying kind of love and infatuation. And this was present among us people. Now, I don't think really the opposite of love is hate. The opposite is pride. So the people of God were not to behave in this way. They were to have this kind of love that didn't insist on its own ways. The other translations, instead of saying insist on its own ways, it says not self-seeking, one translation. Other translation says doesn't seek its own. And so we have an, an example of the right way to go about this. They ha- these folks were to follow the way of Jesus, the gospel message. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul is encouraging that church and saying, you should put each other's interests before your own. You should do this because of the example of Jesus Christ, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but humbled himself and came in the appearance as a man and became a servant. Not just any servant, but a bondservant. A bondservant who is willing to die on behalf of his people. This, this is the profound love that we're talking about 
in 1 Corinthians 13, this is the kind of love that we are to have for each other. A, a, a love that has no self-interest. We, we have to be careful. We have become a people of great preferences, right? And part of the reasons why we have so many preferences is because we live in a wealthy place. You may not have a whole bunch of money in your pocket right now, but we live in a wealthy place where you can choose so many different things. I mean, the menu at the restaurants, you know? I mean, if you go to Denny's, you've been to Denny's? Like, that's a whole novel of choices you have at Denny's. Lots of different choices, and we have preferences on, on what we eat and when we eat and how we eat, and we have preferences just preferences, preferences. If you have a lot of preferences, I want to encourage you, watch out. If you have so many preferences, be careful. You, have, you may have been lulled to sleep into thinking that your personal interests matter that much. <laughs> I, you know, when I, when I go with folks to Kenya, if you've been on a mission trip, you want to find about how your preferences have been ruling your life? Go on a mission trip. Amen? You go on a mission trip, and all of a sudden, they don't have any of your preferences. <laughs> like, everything you're doing is like, this is not my preference. This is not my preference. And you begin to realize inside of you, there are so many things that you used to get your way with. You have structured your life so that you would be happy. And none of this is making you happy. And so, like, you have bears come out of people. Like, they're holding it in. They're trying to hold it in, but they're like, I don't like being here. I don't like doing this, but I know I'm supposed to because I love Jesus, but I don't like it. I've had people almost starve themselves because they didn't want to eat goats. It's not bad. Sometimes it's even delicious. But it's not our preference. I understand. It, it wells up in me. We become a people of preferences. We have become a people of agendas, right? This is, this is what I had planned. There are some people who are like, they have a disposition of that, like they're planning people, and the plan was this. I had prepared for the plan, and now the plan has gone asunder, and you are the fault for that, so we need to get back on track, right? Amen. We got some of those in the room, right? There's some people like have no plans at all, like I don't know what I'm doing, right? Not, a, not, not as big a struggle, but we are people who have agendas and plans, the way we want to do things, the way that suits us best, what we think is the better way. Sometimes it's not even because we think it's a better way, because it's our way. Amen. Gosh, y'all aren't amening very much today. I don't know what's going on, but... Now, we are, we've become keenly aware of our own preferences, that we can even write them out, and we enunciate them to people oftentimes. But this kind of love says that we put others before ourselves. Here's a good test. Are you keenly aware of the presence of the preferences of others? Are we as keenly aware as, of the needs of others as we are on our own? Yeah. Amen. It's a good first step. 
Jonathan Edwards, when he's talking about this kind of love, is a, uh, one of the great theolo- American theologians, says, love is putting yourself in the happiness of others' happiness. So, this is so good, isn't it? Like, I find, we should find happiness when we make other people happy. That's the good stuff. Like, we are, we are, we are celebrating, we enjoy when they're happy. Amen. That feels right, doesn't it? You, you've done that. We've done that before. You're like, okay, that feels good. That's right. And if you're the one who's receiving it, you're like, yeah, that's right. That feels good. <laughs> and there's also, you know, a reciprocation. Like, well, I, thank you. Like, I want to follow that lead. Love is putting yourself in the happiness of the other's happiness. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, we have to say yes to everyone else's agenda or yes to everybody else's plans because the love we're talking about here is mainly, he's saying, don't be self-seeking in your interests. Don't make your interest number one. And also, don't make everybody else's interest number one. The number one interest you have is what is God's interest in this matter. And so we're able to say, you know, not everything that my husband, wife, children, friend, person at work, the community, not everything that they want or their agenda is good. We first seek the agenda of God. What are you doing in these moments? What, what is for the best of my child and for my husband or for my wife or for my neighbor? So instead of seeking our own, we are looking for the larger work of God. Listen to James 3.14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above. But this wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and self-ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason. I like that one full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Great words. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven. As a people of God, we are not to be seeking our own interests first, but we are to look at the interests that God has and how we might bring others to Him. The, the passage we read just a minute ago said that we are reconcilers. Reconciling others to God. Just as we are reconciled to him, as he's making the way for us, now we see each other and we say, how can I best help them get to God? How can I best show them the way? How best can I encourage them in their faith and godliness? How can I give them hope? I want to reconcile them together. I want to be reconciled with them. That becomes our job, our way. That becomes job number uno. uno. That's Spanish. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason. I like that open to reason because, you know, oftentimes we, 
our gut response is to like prickle when we hear somebody else has their agenda and they're trying to force their agenda on us, right? We're like, And because of that, we need to be slow and ask this question, well, what is really going on here? I know my heart and my emotions are all riled up because I don't want to do what they want to do or I, I want to do the thing I want to do. So it requires some reasoning. Slow down. Consider what God is doing. These next two I'm going to bundle together because I think they're in large response to when we are trying to put others ahead of us or when someone is trying to put their will against ours, how do we respond? When, when someone else is seeking their kingdom first, we run into that, and it says now, don't be irritable. Other translations say don't be easily angered or easily provoked. When other people don't want to follow our agenda or when someone else is imposing theirs, we, we should respond to those agendas with patience and endurance. James 1.19, again, be quick to listen. Slow to speak. Slow to become angry. We are to have long fuses. Long fuses buy time for prayer. Long fuses buy time for reasoning. Long fuses give time for the correction of our passions. Long fuses give us recognition of what God's plan is, not ours. Be slow to anger. Amen. You know, there's some who seemingly are really good at this. It seems like they're always putting someone else's agenda ahead of theirs. That theirs are always second and third place. There are some who are people pleasers. In some ways, we feel like we have a pass if we're a, a people pleaser. Like I'm always expending myself making people happy. But be careful that too could be a form of pride or insecurity. I, I've got to please people so they'll like me. I've got to do this so that people don't think badly about me. When we should be asking, what does God think about me in these moments? Sometimes people pleasing is not helpful to that person at all. So as the, we as the people of God have to have a true kind of love for people, not something that's just covering over. Our service shouldn't just cover over the fact that we are not certain of who we are. We're not, we don't feel like we're loved. Or we have to, in some way, exchange our service for other people's love. The next one is, in this couplet, is don't be resentful. Another translation is don't take into account a wrong suffered. Keeps no records of wrongs. And so these are accounting terms. Oh, have we done this? We uh, keep good records of what people have done to us. We remember. And remember you, remember, you remember, we remember in vivid detail, don't we? Like, when we were hurt, like, you said this, and this is the look on your face, and this is where we were, this is what you were wearing. Do you remember what we were, where you were, I was wearing when we met? Nope. But I can tell you when you got made me mad what you were wearing, you know? We're very good at keeping those accounts and let, letting them build up. But this is not the kind of love that we have, this kind of resentment. That, that's not love at all. We are to keep zero accounts. We are to forgive. 
and move on. Nothing owed. Finally, this last category. He says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And I want to tell you, this has been really hard for me to figure out what in the world this is talking about, to be honest. (laughs) All things. That's a common theme. All things. In our uh, hermeneutics class on Saturday, if you missed it, we had a great time together. Uh, and we'll have to find another way to include some more people. But one of the things we talked about in that hermeneutics class was something called chiasm. And so there are, there are in Hebrew literature, and then uh, passed on to our Christian brothers and sisters here, uh, it's the kind of literature that says that there are two sides. There's, a, there's repeating ideas, and they repeat on top, and the AA, and then BB, and CC, in the middle you find the truth. Well, here is uh, a picture of this. These, there are four things mentioned here, and at first I couldn't figure out how all these things work together, but it's a chiasm. The, the first and the last, the bears all things, endures all things, those two go together, and the believes all things and hopes all things. Basically it's saying this, there are two things you really need to know, that love bears all things, it endures, it's going to keep going, it's not going to stop. And secondly, the love hopes, it believes, it believes all things. And so I think there's a, a part of this that is really encouraging to us to understand, really, 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 your love is going to have to endure some things. Amen. It's going to have to endure a lot of things. And in fact, when you get to the point where you don't really want to endure with somebody again, you know what? You're going to have to keep enduring. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We are always going to get to the end of our love. That's the, that's the point. But it endures all things. It keeps hoping. Even when there's a break in the relationship, you see the continual, continual uh, uh, sin of the other person. You still believe. You still hope. And, and when it feels like, I can't believe anymore. I, I can't hope for them anymore. I'm done with that. You need to do it again. <laughs> it hopes all things. It believes all things. This kind of love is too much. Can I tell you that? You don't have it in you. I don't have it in me. I can't do it. All things? How about 50% of things? <laughs> right? Maybe, maybe I can do 50%. All things? I can't do all things. And that's the point. You cannot do this. In this passage, love is personified. It's, it's given human characteristics, right? And so love is found in a person. And so we could say, we could, we could substitute the word love for Jesus. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to live out 1 Corinthians 13, which is impossible, If you want to live it out, then this is what you have to do. You have to know Jesus. You have to know the way, the truth, and the life. He's walked this way before, and he says, come, follow me. In fact, if we didn't have 1 Corinthians 13, we wouldn't understand the well-orbed kind of love that God requires of us. He says, this is the way. This is how you go. This is how you live your life. So we kind of go, oh, 
oh, okay, well, I thought it was, but that's it, okay. So we're, we're now going on the way. Follow Jesus because he lived this. He is the way, the truth. He lived this and the life. He has not just lived it as an example. He did it for us, and now he gives it to us, and he lives in us. He is at work to accomplish this in us. So not only do we have the direction to go in, not only do we have now a clear path towards this kind of love, but we have the one who did it for us as an example who now lives within us. Don't forget, my friends, we have the Holy Spirit living within us to do things greater than we could ever imagine before. I know oftentimes we're walking going, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. And we just say, I need to just bow down before God and say, I cannot do it. And then, and then you're on the right feeding, footing right there. He is at work in us to accomplish these good things. We need to recognize the way, live in the truth. You know, this kind of love, we, you kind of have to, you know it when you see it. My grandfather, good old, good old grandpa, Gummelt. And my grandmother, she had Alzheimer's. And she, before that, she was sick all the time. My grandfather loved on her. He wasn't perfect, but he loved on that lady. And he cared for her. And spent time and was able to overcome any frustration. She, caused, she was a, sometimes very frustrating. But when you see that, you say love, that kind of love endures all kinds of things. That kind of love, continue to hope and believe. You kind of recognize it when you see it, right? I mean, even like you watched Chick-fil-A. You know when they, the, those folks are out there in front of Chick-fil-A and they had signs and they were saying, Chicken, these people are terrible. And, you know, and what did some of the uh, employees at Chick-fil-A do? They went out and brought them water. You go, it's all right. You look at that and you go, that's it. That kind of stuff. You kind of you have to recognize it, right? You can, it's hard to describe it, but once you see it, you go, that's it. That's what I'm talking about. And when we watch what Jesus has done for us, that's it. That's it. When we read about the prodigal son and his son who's been living this wretched life, snubbing his nose at his father, and then he comes back and he says, take me back as a servant. And the dad goes, <laughs> come here, boy. We're having a party. Whoa. That's, that's what that looks like, right? That's the kind of love. And that's the kind of love the Father has for each of you. The kind of love the Father has for me. Run into his arms and say, I don't got it. I'm going to need a little get me going again. I need your Holy Spirit power in me to love again, to believe again, to hope again, to endure a little bit longer. And I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, as we become better and better at this, I want to tell you, some of you are really good at this. It's a sweet place to be. 
and you keep looking. I, I, as a pastor, man, I have, I have the greatest job in the world. I get to sit out and go, look at there. I recognize that. First Corinthians 13. And sometimes it's when people who are in my office are there in tears because things are so hard, but they keep enduring. I'm like, that's it. That's it. So keep enduring. Keep believing. Follow the way of our Lord. Believe, hope, and endure. This is the love of Christ.